Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. This is episode 32 of the show. Uh, we think we got a great episode for you today. We interview Mr. Christopher Stoller, the local author from right here in Columbus, Ohio. Before we dive into the interview here, though, uh, I want to remind you all to take a quick look down at your phones and uh, whatever podcast app you're listening to this on. And go ahead and click that subscribe button if you haven't already. It really helps us out. And uh, make sure you guys don't miss a single episode of Conquering Columbus. We uh, also want to take the time to uh, briefly thank some of our sponsors here on the show. They allow us to uh, keep creating this amazing free content for you guys and keep shelling out great interviews with amazing people from around the city. And that starts with AWH. AWH are builders of exceptional digital products for the web and mobile that drive business for select growth companies. With over 4,500 applications developed and 10 million users enjoying AWH applications, they are focused on solving problems and improving lives through better software applications. If you want to find out more about AWH and all the cool things they do, check out awh.net, which will be linked in the show notes, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. And I want to give a shout out to another one of our supporters, Max Effort Muscle. For those of you guys who aren't familiar with Max Effort Muscle, they're a nutritional supplement company that just recently launched, supplier of cutting-edge nutritional supplements. Some of their current products include pre-workout, post-workout, and fat burner. Mike and I just recently started using the pre-workout, and it's awesome. Best thing is they're supplements with ingredients you can understand. Nothing's hidden behind some proprietary blend, and you don't know what's in it. Not to mention the company was started and is run by some local Central Ohio athletes that Mike and I know very well, and uh, we can trust to deliver high-quality product aimed at providing value rather than just making a buck, which is really hard to find in the supplement industry these days. And if you want to find out more about the company, the team behind it, the store behind the company, which is pretty cool, or their offerings, check out maxeffortmuscle.com. Our final shout-out of the day goes out to Procure Clean. Procure Clean, the official disinfectant deodorizer for USA Wrestling, is a chlorine dioxide product and has quickly become the leading disinfectant on the market. Uh, they got a patented drop-and-go system and allows users just to add water and place it on whatever they want to disinfect for 30 seconds to eliminate everything from MRSA, staph, and ringworm, tampatigo and herpes, just to name a few. Procure Clean leaves no chemical footprint, is eco-friendly, and food-grade safe. The only preventable injury in sports is a skin ailment, so let Procure Clean keep your facilities clean and your athletes in their sport. Hey, if you want to learn more about Procure Clean, please contact sales at procureclean.com. That's P-R-O-K-U-R-K-L-E-A-N.com, which will be linked in the show notes, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. All right, Conquerors, let's get this episode rolling. drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and I might get you know my head kicked in in the beginning but I'll find a way to survive I'll find a way to get the job done yeah there's a little doubt but you know what once again I think of that guy in my ear I think about stepping up to the stage I think about the challenge like I've lost sometimes but I've won more than I've lost and so like I bet on me any day choosing greatness greatness doesn't choose you you know, you have to choose it. And, yeah, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. 
Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. Today on the show, we got Mr. Christopher Stoller, and I'm really excited to uh, have him here on the show today. We're going to kick it over to Josh, though, for a quick intro. Yep, Christopher is the author of The Black Lens, a book focused on drawing attention to and raising support for human trafficking victims. 10% of the profits from the book are donated organizations dedicated to fighting sex trafficking and supporting victims. And welcome to the show, Christopher. Oh, don't want to forget, we also just found out you won the grand prize in a national novel contest. So welcome to the show. Maybe let's kick it off with that. Let's talk a little bit about the prize you just won. Maybe give us a little bit of background on the novel that, that sure. I didn't cover in that intro. Yes, well, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. And I was, I'm still honestly in shock about the contest. Uh, this was uh, the fir my first book that I've ever written and gotten published. And I just found out actually uh, a couple days after Christmas that that won the grand prize in the Writer's Digest self-published ebook awards. So it's a national contest, and I found out that there were more than 600 other books that it was competing against, uh, and it won first place in the crime and mystery category, and then went all the way to grand prize. So very exciting. Still, still in shock. Yeah, that's awesome. It couldn't be a better time to win. Like we just had uh, a team of ours from college win a huge champ world championship tournament during that time, and, and somebody was talking about said. There can't be a better time for good things to happen to you than like that holiday span because you're right. already on a high, you're around <laughs> right. family, you're relaxing, and then you win the biggest book award that you've won in your life so yep. far. It's like that's awesome. That's pretty cool. And you know, you said it's your first book that you've written, but you you were a, a journalist right before um, your current job. Yep. Right? Yeah, I actually uh, so I've written probably more than 500 news stories, mm -hmm. um, papers across the country, and I worked as a reporter out in Oregon. Uh, I was covering a small rural town uh, in the middle of nowhere <laughs> covering everything from the school district to the sewer department and uh, that's kind of where I got my start in writing um, was back then. Were you born out in Oregon? Were you, are you from out west? Or born anything? in California um, but most of my time was was spent in Oregon okay. so I've lived on the west coast for a long time and my wife and I relocated to Columbus about uh, seven years ago now. What does college and your background there look like? And Mike probably wants to chime in, figure out if you're from Southern or Northern California. He's from San Diego, so <laughs> my brother so lives pride. in San Diego. Yeah, uh, goes to the University of San Diego. Uh, we live, grew up in San Jose area, okay. so Northern mm -hmm. Bay Area. I don't pay attention to the whole. I pretend like it's not part it's of the like, United States. It's like two different states, man. You wouldn't <laughs> yes. even like it's too it big. Is. Like people in Ohio don't get it. They're like, "Yeah, oh, California." So you've been to San Francisco? And I'm like, "No, that's ten hours away from me." You could stack Ohio on, on itself twice, yep. and you still wouldn't be to San Francisco from where I live. But that's getting sidetracked. So um, let's back up a little bit. Um, let's talk about you know when you're first going into journalism and um, kind of uh, what drove you towards writing. Sure. So I've always been interested in writing. I mean, as long as I can remember, even as a kid, uh, my mom found some some stories and artwork that I had done uh, about some some mysteries and. Um, even as I was a little bit older, getting into like junior high, I was, for whatever reason, excited about sending letters to the editor and seeing them get published. And uh, so I've always been interested in writing. My mom instilled a love for me with writing. Um, she's an author herself, um, had, had some pieces published in different books. And so I, she's just always ingrained that with me. My grandpa, actually, from Idaho, um, he uh, fought in World War II and... Um, for a while, he actually worked as a as a wartime correspondent. Mm -hmm. um, so writing kind of runs in the blood in the family, and um, always been interested on some level. Is that what you studied in college then? Or? Uh, I actually went got my liberal arts degree from Oregon, and then got my master's degree in journalism from University of Maryland. Okay. So kind of lived all over, um, 
but the the main writing focus was in 2005 when I got my master's degree in journalism and then relocated back to Oregon where I started working as a reporter. Okay. Okay. So what led you to decide to write a book, especially, you know, something, a piece of, um, you know, it's fiction, correct? It's right. So even though it's based off of some real details and some, some of your research, but um, what led you to kind of uh, write a piece of fiction from being a journalist and um, what drew you to the cause that you choose to support? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, when I was working as a reporter, actually, uh, some of my sources kept telling me to check out this truck stop <clears throat> that, that existed in the town, right outside the town. And um, one of my sources in particular was convinced that uh, that sex trafficking was happening at this truck stop. So we did a little digging, worked with some other reporters to try and see if we could independently verify the information. And unfortunately, I mean, this was you know, more than 10 years ago. So people are still starting are starting to talk more about trafficking today. But a decade ago, I mean, you couldn't find very many statistics. You couldn't find many records. And so we unfortunately weren't able to to validate that this was actually taking place even though everyone knew that it was. Mm -hmm. So for me, that was kind of the beginning of this quest to, to research and write about this issue. I, I was pissed off, to be honest, that I couldn't confirm that this was happening that, you know, with mm -hmm. official records, but um, I was, there's no way I was gonna let go of the story. I, if I couldn't write about it in a newspaper, I wanted to write about it in, in a novel. And on a personal level, I mean, I've always been drawn to, to storytelling, and for me, um, I love reading and I love fiction and I believe strongly in the power of literature to, to change people's hearts and minds on an issue in a way that no other medium can, um, whether mm -hmm. it's a newspaper or a nonfiction article. There's just something about stories that really can help you understand on an emotional level about an issue without it being preachy, but encourages mm -hmm. you to do something, right? I mean, think about right. Uncle Tom's Cabin, To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm -hmm. um, most recently, Colson Whitehead did a great book, uh, Underground Railroad, that kind of reimagines slavery in a dystopian mm -hmm. setting. Um, those books deal directly with an issue, but in a way that that's focused on the character and takes you through a story rather than a news clip. Right, right. And I think you can get a lot bigger emotional response and a more connection to the issue if for especially you know for some people I guess I wouldn't say for everybody but I mean, I've always been a big uh, literature guy I um, took a lot of literature classes in high school actually and I applied to Ohio State as a journalism major mm. fun fact didn't actually end up being a journalism major but um, it was it was something that was on my mind so I can definitely understand the uh, draw to writing right. and reading take us back what I'm curious about is what did the research process look like when you were um, in your journalist position trying to figure out if sex trafficking was going on at this location like was it like are you just creeping around there at night in camouflage? <laughs> like, what does that look like for... I wish. No, um, I, you know, so journalists, I mean, we, we start with the records, right? It has to be verified independently. So we worked with the sheriff's office, um, submitted some uh, Freedom of Information Act requests and tried to pull as many records as we could to, to validate that this, that there were, you know, whether it was an arrest record, whether it was a complaint, anything like that. And we couldn't get that. Um, but what I found during the research process is... The reason there are, tends to not be many reports, actual valid reports of trafficking, or like police reports, is most of these girls don't want to report what's going on, right? They're, they're scared of their pimp. They may have been threatened by um, you know, someone that's working for the pimp that if they go to the cops or report it, that they're going to get killed or have their parents killed or a boyfriend or whatever it is. There's a lot of threats. So that's why there's a lack of records. Um, so then, you know, we just tried talking to, to some of 
people and they didn't want to talk to us. They didn't want to go on the record. So that's where we ended up in a, in a dead end. Um, so that was kind of the, the process at the time. And can you, can, can we talk a little bit about, in just case anybody out there doesn't know, like what the details of sex trafficking would be? Like, are, are these, are the girls being abducted and then never coming back to their homes? Are they being taken to other countries? Right. Oh, great question. Um, so the most, con- that's the most common perception of trafficking. You think of a movie like Taken, right? Mm-hmm. Liam Neeson, where he goes and kicks ass and um, rescues girls that are, you know, kidnapped overseas. That does happen, unfortunately. Um, and it, it does happen a lot overseas. But in the United States, and especially in rural America, um, what's more common is for someone to be blackmailed or manipulated or coerced into it um, because it, it evades the radar of police and social workers, um, and it's much more easy to, um, to manipulate girls to stay in the life. So a very common situation is you know, there may be a girl that, um, that runs away from home, has some family issues, um, may have been abused by her father or a relative runs away, and that's the easiest target for a pimp, right? He may find her at a mall, he may find her walking on the side of the road and offer her a place to stay. Before she knows it, she's performing acts in exchange for rent, that type of thing. Um, and that's that's the most common process in the US. So maybe let's transition from that into the process of researching and writing the book. Maybe I, I'd like to know like the point when you made the decision, this is the book I'm gonna write, how you went about tackling that and your approach. I mean, obviously you had a lot of writing experience, so you're used mm-hmm. to kind of writing shorter pieces, though not something so extensive and probably so much in depth, I'm assuming. Right. Yes. Uh, the most I'd ever written, I think, was my thesis in college, which was 50 pages. This was 262 pages. So it's still enough to make me sick. <laughs> <laughs> and that was 50 pages double-spaced. Really? So we're talking like 25 pages versus 262. Um, yeah, this was the hardest thing I've ever written, and... I knew that as just as a reporter, I had to start with the research because in order to make this book believable, I had to get in this in the mind of a teenage girl, not just a teenage girl, but a teenage girl who was going through serious traumatic issues. And I knew that was impossible without talking to these girls. So uh, my wife and I had just moved to Columbus. This was seven years ago. Uh, We got involved with a church and some anti-trafficking organizations as soon as we moved here. And I just started building relationships and eventually convincing the social workers to let me do interviews with some survivors. Uh, and these were girls that had been rescued out of the situation years ago, but were, were willing to talk about what it was like for them to go through that. So I interviewed about a dozen survivors, um, a mix of Caucasian, Hispanic, African-American, to kind of get a wide variety of, of their situations. Um, but the vast majority of them were trafficked right here in central Ohio, Columbus specifically. Um, but I knew that that wasn't enough because I, there's so many other issues that go into trafficking. So I interviewed social workers, I interviewed police officers, um, talked to a detective, one of the vice squad detectives in Columbus to get his perspective on what he sees. And, um, then did a, uh, 12 hour ride along with the officer to kind of see what, what it's like in the nitty gritty of dealing with these types of calls. I have to say, I have to be honest on the air, I've read half the book. I haven't finished it yet. I've enjoyed it so far. And I think that, like you said, when you talked about you know getting into character and writing it from a perspective of a teenage girl, that's what I find was impressive about the writing, most impressive about the writing, was that I, I, it was very believable. And I'd met you, and you're a bearded man. <laughs> so I was sitting there going, Bearded, bald man. I, bearded, bald man. And it, was, and it was very believable, and it was very, you know, the whole story, you know, feels real to me. 
Thank so you. I, I'm very impressed with that. And I, you know, I've always found a hard time when I write with perspective. So I, I, I was really impressed with the perspective. And I think it shows from all the, uh, all the research you did and you mm -hmm. know, the time you put into it. So, um, but uh, getting kind of moving towards writing the book, were there, when, when did you actually start writing the book? So I started writing in 2010, and that was just kind of outlining, putting together some ideas. Um, I'd say, though, really putting pen to paper was uh, about three years ago now. Uh, and that was waking up every morning at 5 a.m. to crank out 500 words or more. Uh, because writing is a number game. Writing a novel is a numbers game. And you've got to get to at least you know anywhere from 60 to 90,000 words. And the only way to do that is to just plug away every single day, 500 words a day or more, until um, you finish. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, I'd say about three years ago. And, you know, I think there's a lot of uh, interesting things that we could talk about in that in that process, but just take, like, two steps back. Like, what I'm interested in, you talked about researching and interviewing all these people from different perspectives. Um, for one, how difficult was it to get these girls to open up? I mean, they were okay with talking about it, but to relive that experience by telling it had to have been really hard. And, and to pull details out of them, you'd almost feel like you're, you know, it'd be difficult to ask these questions. So I'm interested in hearing how that went. And then if you noticed anything different from the different perspectives you were getting on the situation. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. It was it was very hard, first of all, for for the survivors initially to open up. They were very skeptical. Uh, it helped that there was a social worker. Anytime I did an interview, a social worker was in the room. So they had someone very close to them that they trusted who, who was there. And could help steer the the conversations, um, but it was it was very hard initially for them to open up. But I noticed that once they started talking, they revealed just a lot of information. And you know the thing that I told them from the very beginning is that first of all, this was going to be completely completely anonymous. Um, I wasn't going to reveal any of their names. In fact, the book takes place in Oregon, not Ohio, where I did the interviews. So uh, there would be complete anonymity. And I think the biggest thing for them is that this was a way for them to to give a voice to what they went through, right? To help people understand just how easy it can be for a girl to get sucked into this life and how hard it is to escape. Um, those are, there's so many misconceptions out there about trafficking and you know, images of taken and that kind of thing that these girls really wanted people to understand you know, what they went through and, and how it's different from what you see on CSI. And they did know a book was gonna be written from- Yes, yes, ago. definitely, yep. Um, and in terms of, you know, the interview process, it, yeah, it was definitely hard even for me to, to ask these questions. I mean, I um, had to take a step back quite a few times during the writing process and interview process because it's, it's really hard to hear those stories. They're mm -hmm. brutal. And then what about the different perspectives? Like as you're interviewing the police officers, the social workers, did you notice any, I'm curious, like any misalignment in terms of what people thought was going on, what actually was going on? Is pretty much everybody on the same page or anything that unique that stuck out to you? What surprised me the most was how how aligned people were in the conversations. I mean, the the, the stories of the survivors and the, what the social workers do to help them and the police officers, uh, most of the people were on the same page. Uh, there really wasn't anything that stood out that uh, that there was a big disagreement. I, I think one, you know, there there is this misconception out there that that I've heard that police officers, you know, don't you know why can't they just go and arrest pimps right away or, or arrest the, the men who were soliciting them. And that was something that was very eye-opening is to see that, you know, this kind of thing takes time. It can take months or years to, to complete an investigation before you have enough evidence, right, to do that kind of arrest. So um, 
that's probably the only disparity I saw is just, you know, why aren't the police doing more? But yeah, I think, I think that's probably a personal logical gap that I have myself is just like, even when it comes to, you hear about drug dealers and they know what house they live in, but they can't arrest them yet. And you mm-hmm. just, in your head, you, it doesn't make that connection, but there's just so many processes, I guess, that they have to go through to make sure right. that they can seal and deal. So that's kind of interesting to hear that happen. So now back to the writing process, I guess. Um, for somebody who doesn't know anything about writing a book, maybe somebody out there has, what am I looking for here? We'll edit this part out. So it has a, uh, <laughs> has a conviction or like has a cause. So what about somebody that has a cause that's really close to their heart, but they want to write a book about it, but they've never written anything before. Like how, what was that process like? So the, I think the biggest thing for me was just instead of starting with a cause, starting with a story, right? Because when you're writing a novel, it's it's not a nonfiction piece. It's not a news report. And actually, I remember the first draft I gave my wife, she hated because she felt like it read like a, a news story, right? Like it was written by a journalist. And so with with fiction, um, you've got to start with a story and, and really have it be character-driven as opposed to cause-driven, right? Um, there are some books out there that are, you know, about trafficking that are very cause-driven. And I've read some of them. They tend to be very preachy. They tend to be, you know very nondescript when it comes to, to the violence. And not that we, you want to glorify the violence or go into great detail, but you can't gloss over that either when you're writing this type of book. So I think my best advice is just start with the story, start with the characters, um, and weave in the themes and the cause from there. And so my question is, did you ever run into any, you know, you hear a lot about writers having run into roadblocks. And I can't remember the exact phrase for it, but there's a specific, I guess it's just called writer's block. And... Yep. Um, you know, where people read, hey, I got there. <laughs> hey, I didn't make fun of you when you said personal logical earlier, so. Nobody's going to know about it because I'm going to cut it out. <laughs> <laughs> but um, what was I going to say? But did you ever run into writer's block or anything like that and get stuck anywhere? Oh, yeah, every day. Every day? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> just, no. So what was, the, what was the process for getting through that? Just working through it. You know, there's mm-hmm. no magical way to get through it other than just to keep writing. Um, I think the biggest fear the writers have is that they're not gonna, they don't know where to go right. here, right? You finish 500 words. You got to start again the next day. Where do you go? Mm-hmm. And I've noticed, you know, writing is a lot like exercise or any other activity you're pursuing. The more you do it, the more naturally it's going to come. Right. Um, so when I when I first started writing the book, it it was painful to get 500 words out. Um, but by the time I got to 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 words, things just started to roll. Right. So, yeah, there were roadblocks all the time. Um, I think one of the biggest issues was just figuring out the plot because I want, on the one hand, I wanted the book to be very believable and realistic and accurate. But on the other hand, there had to be a really strong sense of story. It had to be a page turn. It had to be entertaining because at the end of the day, a book is a form of entertainment, right? right? I mean, it's like a movie. You, you can have the greatest cause in the world, but if people aren't turning the pages, it's not going to be right. And it was a full-time thing for you. You said you're waking up at 5 a.m. and just writing till when? No, so I work full time. Okay. So this was, uh, I woke up at 5 a.m. to put in an hour every day uh, before the kids woke up and got them ready for school and, and all of that. Do you feel like that helped you? I, I've been listening to a lot of different interviews lately, people who are writing books and things, and they, they love waking up first thing in the morning before they get distracted and hit with all these social media outlets and all these things. And I think, I don't know if it was Mike talking to me the other day too, where they were talking about um, the minute you wake up in the morning, you're hit with, you know, all these different emails and, and nobody's really creative anymore because mm-hmm. 
your brain, the parts of your brain that are creative are being distracted. So yeah. do you think that early morning really helped you? Absolutely. I mean, that that's kind of my sacred time because I, I have a wife, I have a three-year-old daughter, I have a seven-month-old son. And so I know that I've got to guard that time. And it's the time that they're still sleeping, right? Mm-hmm. So from five to six or seven, whatever it is, um, that's the magical time when I when I can create and, and express that creativity. Um, you know, I, I put my phone away. I make sure I don't have email or browser or anything open because... It's got to be 100% focused on the writing. Well, I was to say, not a very important comment, but I thought it was interesting the way you described writing as an exercise and I get better at it. Because I do feel like every time I went to write anything, I recently had to write some essays for like an application to grad school. And I feel like you have like this bag of tools when you're writing. Mm-hmm. And like my bag of tools is really, really small. It's very empty. So I'm not <laughs> a strong writer. But if I had a lot, like, it, it, you know, you get so much better at it. Because yeah. as I was like, trying to Google how to write things, I was increasing my tool bag and yeah. I'll if let we, you run from here because yeah, I have nothing yeah. to go off of that. <laughs> if we were playing golf, if writing was playing golf, Josh is carrying a three wood and a seven iron and that's it. <laughs> but actually that's what I do in normal golf and I actually can do pretty good sometimes. <laughs> so, hey. Probably better than I can write. So. Uh, but um, I was going to jump into uh, publishing the book mm-hmm. and that process because so, I know it can be tough to get things published. Uh, as a writer, so what what was that process like for you? Um, did were people reaching out to you? Did you have to go to uh, a bunch of different publishers and say, "Hey, I have this book. Do you want to publish it?" Yeah, that was a, one of the most eye opening processes to me was was publishing because it's the first time I pursue that as well. So I really wanted initially to pursue a traditional publishing route where I found a literary agent who was willing to represent me to a one of the big five publishers, and. I spent a good six months pursuing that process. I queried, I think, about 70-something literary agents across the country, most of them in New York. Um, of those, I heard back from about four, I think it was four or five of them, which is actually a pretty good return rate. I mean, mm-hmm. usually when you query agencies, they rarely respond. Um, it's just a form email that you get, like, we read your book, we're not interested, or you may not even get a response. Um, I, I heard read a story one time that, that a small agency that has you know maybe six people that work in the office, they get a hundred thousand queries a year. I mean, think about that. And that's the hundred thousand books. And that's a small agency, right? right that they would have to read. So yeah. I mean, there's obviously no time to read to read all everything people send you, and the vast majority of it is awful. It's terrible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've um, never heard of anybody getting accepted. Like the, a story, I wrote a book, got accepted on my first letter. Like. But then you hear them say, like, I got turned down 137 mm-hmm. times. It sounds so dramatic, but you're like, I think anybody who writes a book gets turned down 137 times. It's just part, it's a numbers game, it seems right. like. One guy said he literally got a rejection email. Somebody, he had sent his letter in, they'd thrown it in the trash. The janitor had taken it out and noticed that nobody replied back to it. So the janitor had gone out of their way to send a rejection. This is another podcast wow. I was listening to. I don't know who <laughs> it was. I can't give you a, somebody famous, but, you know, I was just kind of nuts. The janitor felt that it was so bad. Right. <laughs> like, oh, I can't believe they did this. They didn't even read this. <laughs> this man needs to know this is bad, and he is not getting published here. But then you hear stories, you know, the other day, the Dispatch had a, Columbus Dispatch had an article about a girl from, I think it was Westerville, who her first book got picked up by a major publisher. Um, so it, it, it can happen. You know, um, J.K. Rowling, that, that was Harry Potter was her first book. She approached tons of people, and one of them responded. Mm-hmm. And I bet those other publishers are kicking themselves. Yeah, they're probably for, a little for not doing anything. <laughs> so um, yeah, it's it's a numbers game. And um, I had one agent actually from California who uh, read the entire manuscript, uh, was very excited about it initially, um, and by the end though, she just decided that 
it what it wasn't enough for her. She wanted something that with a little bit different of an angle, um, focused more on uh, street life with gangs and juveniles. So she decided not to pursue it. But the fact that an agent had read the entire thing was very encouraging to me. Um, so then after that, I spent about six months doing that. Uh, then I started pursuing independent publishing. So I contacted uh, local publishers, other independent publishers around the country, and heard back from a few of them, the request of the manuscript. Uh, but there was one that finally made me an offer, um, and that was Boyle and Dalton. They they were based in Columbus. They actually just relocated to Zanesville, but um, they had published um, several books uh, prior to mine. And uh, I was really intrigued because they were they had basically had a hybrid publishing process where they they worked with you to completely edit and gut the book so that it was the best it could be. Um, and then, then they would publish it. So uh, there's a lot of, you know, vanity presses out there. They'll just run with whatever you give them. But, uh, Boyle and Dalton was very rigorous about, uh, editing the book. In fact, the first draft I gave them, they basically said it, it needed a lot of work before right. it saw the light of day. And they gave me about a month to make those two. A lot books. of red paint. Yep. Everywhere. Yep. <laughs> but, um, so what, from that point, you know, from the point where you made your first changes to the book is now on people's shelves, people are buying it. How, what's the time frame? It was about a three-month process. Three it was months. a really rigorous process. Okay, and then, so, uh, how was the book received by people at first? Really well. You know, I, I immediately started getting feedback from, uh, from survivors. Mm -hmm. um, I shared the book with some survivors. Okay. Um, some of them that I had interviewed, some that I hadn't. Um, but between Amazon and Goodreads, I've received, uh, more than a hundred reviews and ratings. And, and a lot of those are, are from survivors of trafficking. And that, that to me has been the, the most encouraging part is to see, you know, survivors say that this explains the hell that they went through and is realistic. Mm -hmm. I kind of want to talk a little bit more about that and get into the details of the book before we wrap up. But what I'm also interested in is what does a publishing contract look like? Like how do they differ from each other? And what does that process look like for somebody who might be interested in writing a book about a cause they're passionate about and trying to figure out what the right publisher is for them? Just anyone who gives them a deal? Sure. I can only explain just the little bit of knowledge that I have from the pitching process, but uh, the biggest takeaway that I've I've heard and learned <laughs> is to make sure you read the fine print before you sign anything because, um, a you know, from what I understand, um, an agent will typically take about 20% of your profits. Uh, the publishing house will take the vast majority of the rest of that and a typical author on a book one book that sells will make about seven percent of the profit so and that's on a print book when we're talking you know itunes or an ebook you know that sells for 4.99 you're making pennies on on mm. that book um, but even for a print book you may make a buck or two it's the, the profit margins are incredibly low if you go the traditional route and <clears throat> the self-published or, or independent publisher route that that i've gone with um, you get to keep a lot more of those profits, which is why I'm able to donate a good percent to right to nonprofits. Do they have as big of a reach as, as publishing pretty big on, like if you land a big publisher, is the big deal the fact that they can reach more people? And right. It's all about distribution, right? I mean, a book's a product at the end of the day, and they have the distribution. So they have the, the marketing muscle power. They have the, um, you know, all the contacts of bookstores to get your books into brick-and-mortar bookstores. Um, but you know, I mean, even even that's changing. I mean, the the publishing industry, I'd say, is kind of one of those last old school bastions that still that hasn't adjusted to the times, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's still this prejudice that a book has to go through Manhattan with one of the traditional publishers for it to be ever see the light of day. Mm -hmm. um, 
And yet you've got great examples of, of more and more self-published books that have skyrocketed as success and made it on top of the New York Times bestseller list. So, um, yeah, I'm really hopeful that that will become more and more common. Are there any unique things that you've done personally to try to get this in a larger distribution, given the fact that you went with a local publisher? Sure. So, I, you know, my big thing is, um, in addition to selling the book I and partnering with nonprofits, I've, I've gone around the country speaking. Um, so I will go to anti-trafficking conferences and bring, you know, 100 books with me and uh, present about the issue and then sell there. So um, I've done lots of talks in Ohio. I've been to Oregon. I'm going to California, actually, by the end of this month. Um, and I found a – I've actually sold the same amount of books at those conferences as I have online. So that's been another another way to do it. Definitely. So how many how many copies of the book have you sold at this point? 1,004. One that made it over 1,000. <laughs> Hey, that's big. That's a big milestone. Yeah, that's a big milestone. A thousand books. I mean, and it's you know, it's kind of like sharing something on Facebook. The more books you sell, it kind of rolls as a snowball, right. you know. Right. And so, how much how much money have you raised then at this point to contribute towards uh, sex trafficking? Causes? About five hundred. What are your you know What are your goals for the future as you move forward? Like, is there is there a target for you for book sales and money that you contributed to? You know, I a typical book the shelf life is about two years, so I plan to spend the, the rest of 2017 promoting the book and speaking. And um, but I've also got some other ideas for other books that I'd like to to try right. um, and try and go the traditional route again as mm -hmm. well. So um, I definitely want to keep writing and definitely want to keep promoting this this cause in the book. Definitely, that is such a daunting statistic. Like right. I really want to write a book in my life, but the fact that it's like only two years, like. If I was an author and I knew I had to do that again in two years, oh man, I would just I couldn't <laughs> do it. I'd rather rather roll. You better tell that to George Martin or something. <laughs> I don't know. I'd rather do a lot of other things. But oh, what's my next question here? He's had lost, really, man. Had a really good He's one. Lost. You, you threw me off track with the fact that a book only survives for two years. You got to do that again. I got sick for you. Oh, but I want I want to do dig a little bit more detail into the book itself. And talk about you know whatever you can give that's kind of like a i don't know like a, a commercial for the audience to get them kind of excited about it yeah so it's um it, it's a dark literary thriller about a teenage girl who fights back at a pimp forces her into trafficking her and her sister so um it really follows two storylines there's a um, 17 year old girl who's named zoe james uh, she lives in a really um, depressed rural area in mm -hmm. in oregon um and can't give too much of the book away, but right. she ends up getting sucked and, and blackmailed into into this life of trafficking, um, and through a series of events, finds it virtually impossible to to escape. Uh, tries running away, tries calling the cops, tries all these things, but just cannot escape. So that's half the story, and then the other half is following this um, news photographer who is slowly uncovering and unraveling this uh, this conspiracy involving a lot of different local government agencies um, that are that are in on this trafficking ring that are helping to uh, either hide the evidence or fund it or um, play a shell game with the money uh, so it's it's a it's a hyper local story um, and I, I was really intrigued by that idea because I you know again you think of books mm -hmm. like or movies like taken where this happens overseas in India or Europe uh, but I what I really want to do is show how this kind of thing can happen in your own backyard, right? That, right? that it is happening in your own backyard right now, tonight. Mm -hmm. what, what are the statistics about, I think, isn't it Central Ohio and Toledo pretty large areas across the country in terms of, like, relativity 
where this is happening? In terms of tracking, trafficking yeah, yeah. numbers? Yeah, so um, Ohio, there's different statistics, and unfortunately statistics are really tricky when it comes to trafficking because there's no, there's no national database. And like I mentioned earlier, a lot of the girls don't want to report what's going on. Um, but Ohio does have really high numbers. Uh, but the flip side of that that I've heard could be that it's just we're better at reporting it, right? We're better at dealing with it um, because there's a lot of police officers here who are who are committed their lives to to arresting pimps and arresting Johns. So we have high numbers, um, but on the flip side, we're also doing a lot about it. So that's really encouraging to me. Definitely. And so it is January, and uh, if some of you don't know out there, January is Sex Trafficking Awareness Month, which is why we're doing this interview this month. And um, well, not the only reason, obviously, but. Um, where can people go? Where can our guests go? Number one, if they want to learn more about your book and or purchase your book, and number two, if they want to learn more about um, you know just sex trafficking awareness mm-hmm. in general and where they can go to help. Sure. So uh, you can get the book on Amazon, Barnes mm-hmm. and Noble, Kobo, iTunes, all the major retailers. Um, locally in Columbus, uh, it's available at the Bookloft, um, Roosevelt Coffee House, a couple other local shops like that. Um, but the Bookloft is one of the biggest carriers and. In terms of learning more information, um, ChristopherStoller.com is, is my website, and I've included a lot of resources and links to other groups out there that are fighting trafficking both locally and nationally. Um, but just in general, to learn more about the issue, um, I would really recommend going to the National Human Trafficking Resource Center. Um, they're the largest national organization that, that helps raise awareness of this issue, and they actually run a hotline number. Uh, that collects a lot of data on trafficking. So Definitely. those are the biggest places to go. Okay, well, we'll be sure to have all those uh, linked up down in our show notes so you guys have easy access to that. And are there any particular organizations within Central Ohio that people get involved in that help fight against it? Or Yeah, there's. so I work with a lot of different groups. Um, the, some of the biggest ones locally are She Has a Name, which is um, kind of an anti-trafficking hub for a lot of different nonprofits. They put on a lot of different events, raise awareness, um, and actually give scholarship money to survivors um, or, or help victims get out of that situation. So that's a big one. Um, I'm also the board member of Unchained, which is a statewide organization that raises awareness of trafficking through, um, through fashion shows that they put on across Ohio. So um, they kind of they tell the story of a survivor from recruitment to victimhood to finding freedom um, through visual storytelling. And uh, that's, that's another great group. Um, locally, there's a lot of ways people can get involved. Um, Traffic Free is one of the biggest anti-trafficking groups in Columbus where if you actually want to physically do something, you can drive a van uh, once a week through the streets of Columbus uh, in partnership with Columbus PD and hand out gift bags to victims right on the street. So you actually feel like you're doing something. Um, my wife and I did that for about a year and it was, <clears throat> it was very satisfying to see you know, pimps in the background getting upset and um it's a great way to to fight back Mm -hmm. so as we're kind of winding down here uh, we want to ask you a question that we ask all of our guests here on the show the theme of our podcast is live uncomfortably we put it on the back of our shirts and it's kind of the motto we try and live by and we chose live uncomfortably because we feel like in order to be successful people have to push themselves out there outside of their comfort zones daily so what do you think of uh, that phrase and how have you lived uncomfortably yeah, that's it's a great motto. I I have definitely lived uncomfortably for the last five years with writing this book, 
both just on an emotional level, you know, hearing these stories and then writing about it, mm-hmm. um, but also really challenging prejudices and assumptions that I had about about victims and survivors. Definitely. You know, I think that's one of the biggest things with trafficking is a lot of people just, you know, ask the question, you know, why, why can't they escape? You know, they, maybe they actually like being, you know, forced to have sex with men. I mean, otherwise they'd run away, right? And, uh, you know, the, there's those kind of things, stereotypes and misconceptions that when you live uncomfortably and learn about this world that just get blown apart. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Awesome. I think that's a perfect place to wrap up, Chris. I appreciate having you on the show. And any final words for Columbus or anything that um, else that we can do to help you? Or? You know, I just... I've been really impressed at how much Columbus has has done in this space. Um, there's so many great organizations out there locally that have, you know, whether it's a, a coffee shop like the Roosevelt that started up to, to fight trafficking, uh, which I think you guys interviewed recently, or, mm-hmm. um, you know, an actual anti-trafficking organization that's giving gift bags to survivors or victims. I mean, there's so much great work going on in Columbus. So I, I'm really proud to call Columbus my home. Yeah, I love the idea of having a book in a coffee shop. I don't know if that's like a thing. I don't. I guess I don't go to enough coffee shops, but I feel like putting your book to sell in a coffee shop is like it hit me like that was the most genius thing in the world. So, <laughs> aside from that, that's all I got. I appreciate you coming in here, and we had a great time, and thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, Conquerors, that's the end of episode 32. We hope you enjoyed our time with Chris, and if you want to find his book or any of the other websites and organizations he mentioned during the show, They'll all be linked up in the show notes. Before we let you go here, I want to remind you all to go ahead and take a look at that podcast app you're uh, listening to this on. Take the time to click that subscribe button. It'll make sure you never miss a single episode of Conquering Columbus. And uh, while we got you, we want to take one last moment to thank all of our incredible sponsors here at Conquering Columbus. And that starts with AWH. AWH are builders of exceptional digital products for the web and mobile that drive business for select growth companies. With over 4,500 applications developed and 10 million users enjoying AWH applications, they are focused on solving problems and improving lives through better software applications. If you want to find out more about AWH and all the cool things they do, check out awh.net, which will be linked in the show notes, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. And I want to give a shout out to another one of our supporters, Max Effort Muscle. For those of you guys who aren't familiar with Max Effort Muscle, they're a nutritional supplement company that just recently launched, supplier of cutting edge nutritional supplements. Some of their current products include pre-workout, post-workout, and fat burner. Uh, Mike and I just recently started using the pre-workout and it's awesome. Best thing is they're supplements with ingredients you can understand. Nothing's hidden behind some proprietary blend and you don't know what's in it. Not to mention the company was started and is run by some local Central Ohio athletes that Mike and I know very well, and uh, we can trust to deliver high-quality product aimed at providing value rather than just making a buck, which is really hard to find in the supplement industry these days. And if you want to find out more about the company, the team behind it, the story behind the company, which is pretty cool, or their offerings, check out MaxEffortMuscle.com. Our final shout-out of the day goes out to Procure Clean. Procure Clean, the official disinfectant deodorizer for USA Wrestling. It's a chlorine dioxide product and has quickly become the leading disinfectant on the market. Uh, they got a patented drop-and-go system and allows users just to add water and place it on whatever they want to disinfect for 30 seconds to eliminate everything from MRSA, staff, and ringworm, Tampatigo, and herpes, just to name a few. Procure Clean leaves no chemical footprint, is eco-friendly, and food-grade safe. The only preventable injury in sports is a skin ailment, so let Procure Clean keep your facilities clean and your athletes in their sport. If you want to learn more about Procure Clean, 
please contact sales at ProCureClean.com. That's P-R-O-K-U-R-K-L-E-A-N.com, which will be linked in the show notes. And tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. All right, Conquerors, that's the end of episode 32. We'll talk to you next week. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.